Underwriting for Auto Line this week is provided by. In this epic battle of fuel efficiency and endurance, we're here to see which hybrid has the best MPG. That's the essence of a hybrid soul. But is there more to it? The Hybrid Game MPG Challenge. And now, here is your host, John McElroy. Thanks for joining us on AutoLine This Week, where the discussion's all going to be about right-to-work laws. And that's because Michigan, the home to the United Auto Workers Union, is the newest state to have enacted right-to-work legislation. And joining me for today's conversation are Bob Sheravelli from Strategic Labor and Human Resources, Gary Klotz from the law firm Butzel Long, and Kristen Gicek from the Center for Automotive Research in Ann Arbor. And I want to thank you all for joining me on AutoLine this week. Thanks for having us. Kristen, let me start with you. Uh, Michigan, of all places, having gone right to work, is, is this truly, really a threat to the United Auto Workers Union? It's not an immediate threat, I don't believe. Um, United Auto Workers represents me- members and plants in many right-to-work states, um, and by and large, they have retained most of the memberships as paying members in those plants. So it's a new and you know very close to their home, um, but it's it's not a new thing. It's also, I think, not um, a done deal. Even though we're we're looking at it, it's enacted, um, you know, there is going to be legal challenges as well as um, electoral challenges to this law. So until, you know, we've had this for, on the books for five or six years, I don't think that it's a, it's a done deal. Five or six years you think it's going to take before this has all gets settled? Well, or more. <laughs> or more. Gary, do you see it that way? You're, you're the law, a lawyer in the law firm here. Huh? Well, there certainly are legal challenges. I don't think it's going to take five or six years to resolve them, John. And I think most of the legal challenges that are pending are going to be unsuccessful. Why so? Uh, because I think the legal theories that they're pursuing are not going to be winners for the unions. Uh, but I do agree with Kristen that the largest challenge to the right-to-work law will be electoral. Uh, it will be decided possibly after the 2014 election and possibly in a subsequent election. I, I want to pick up on that again, but I want to get Bob into this. Do you see this as a threat to the UAW? Well, I think it's really characteristic of the chipping away at the industry, both from the labor movement and from the other industry challenges. You know, we lost so much market share over the years simply at 1% at a time, and the UAW since... Well, when I first started working there in 1978, there were 1.2 million members, and now it's, what, 350? 380. 380. But not all of those are auto workers either. Not all of them are auto workers, but it's a chipping away at the foundation of the union. And when their due structure goes down, their ability to service, their ability to organize goes down with it. And I think it's also indication that they may have made some fundamental errors in judgment this last couple of years. Kristen, let's go back to what you uh, had raised, because I think this is an interesting point that a lot of people on the outside do not realize. 
the UAW uh, continues to and, and has already mm -hmm. represented, I want to say, plants in five right-to-work states. It's about that many. And primarily, I mean, General Motors has a lot of plants in right-to-work states. So you look at Spring Hill in Tennessee or uh, San Antonio or Fairfax or um, Fort Wayne Truck. Um, so they're in a lot of places that are already right-to-work. Um, you know, but, when this, but it hasn't. But they haven't lost members at those plants. They have haven't. They? And you know, I, I, you know, I checked this out actually at the time when the law was being debated. I thought, well, you know, how how much loss might be we, we be facing? And I called a couple of the locals, and you know, five or ten people out of a plant of two thousand are not dues-paying members. And and I've heard even some of those non-dues-paying members, it, it's for religious reasons that they're not doing it. It well, hasn't even got anything to do with being angry at the union. And there's always been that exception, even in Michigan. It's Beck rights that allowed you to pay only the representational portion of the fee to the union versus... And explain that Beck's rights, because that's a Supreme Court that's decision, That's a Supreme wasn't Court it? decision, and you're probably better at this than I. Okay, Gary. Um, with, the, with the communication workers case, but it allows members to... Um, opt out of paying their full membership dues. And what's exempted, I believe, is um, organizing and political activities and um, public relations. Non-representation Non-representation. Yeah. And, and Kristen also referenced the religious objectors, and that's been in federal labor law for years, that if someone has a religious objection to being a union member, uh, they can donate money instead to a charity that's either designated by them or by the employer in the union. Why wasn't more made of this uh, this Beck decision, where if you didn't like what the union was doing politically or whatever else it happened to be doing, all you had to do was pay a fee because you're benefiting from them or, or uh, negotiating benefits and pay for you. Why wasn't... I, I never heard of this before until this whole right-to-work brouhaha blew up in Michigan. Well, it wasn't really advertised by the unions for obvious reasons, and the employers really didn't have an interest in advertising it or... or uh, a means of advertising it as much as they could have. It just means the employees didn't know about it. But couldn't this have maybe even taken a lot of the steam out of people within the union who did want to see the right to work law, who objected, I don't like the politics of the UAW and I don't want to contribute to it, but had they known of the Beck decision, they could have easily just said, look, I'm not going to give you money for politics, but I will pay you a fee to do negotiations on my behalf. Well, in the states where I do business, that are not right to work. There is almost a, a tacit agreement, I don't even want to say it's an agreement, where the employer doesn't say anything about it, the union doesn't say anything about it, and they avoid employee disruption. But in those states where they do have right to work, there's much more of a, a lobby that informs the employees about it. And I probably do half of my business in right to work states. Looks like it's gonna be even more now. Um, and in those states, I usually see about 30% of that bargaining unit not paying dues or just paying the um, optional administrative costs. And what we're seeing now with the right to work here is it's much more of a, uh, it's very publicized, it's not a groundswell, it is a statewide policy now. But what I've heard, and, and you all can pick up on this, is there seems to be a difference between white collar unions and blue collar unions. And in the white-collar unions, especially in states like Wisconsin and Indiana, we've seen big numbers of people drop out of their white-collar union. I'm thinking teachers in particular, AFSCME, another one. Whereas the blue-collar workers, they seem to, there seems to be more solidarity there. They seem to stick with their union. Do I have that right? Yeah, I think you do, John. I, th I think what we're going to see is more peer pressure and solidarity in the blue-collar unions and in factory settings. 
and in uh, settings like universities where you have adjunct professors or instructors or lecturers, they're going to be much less likely to uh, feel uh, that they'd be stigmatized if they drop out of the union. Gary, you mentioned earlier, too, that you don't think that the attempts to overturn the law in Michigan will succeed because you didn't think their legal arguments had that much uh, to stand on. Go into that a little bit more. Certainly. Uh, the, the one federal lawsuit alleges that uh, federal law, the National Labor Relations Act, and the Supremacy Clause of the United States Constitution prevent the state of Michigan from implementing a right-to-work law. That same theory was tried uh, last year in Indiana against the Indiana right-to-work law, and a couple of months ago it was uh, unsuccessful and the case was thrown out. Uh, so I don't think that theory is going to work. Uh, the other case that's pending uh, that challenges both uh, the public sector and private sector alleges that the uh, legislature violated the Open Meetings Act by passing the law when uh, there were protesters all over the Capitol building and the Capitol building had to be shut down because of safety concerns by state police. I have a hard time believing that a group of judges will find that, that there was a, an Open Meetings Act violation uh, which would mean that the law was enacted in secrecy uh, simply because the protesters shut down the building. I would agree with you 100%. Plus, I would also say the governor and the legislature really did a flawless job at having this fly under the radar with enough protections, whether it's in referendum or recall, that this is going to be on the books until the general election in 2014. And if we see any of our economy improve here, that is jobs come in, there is going to be an argument, a political argument, not a legal argument, made that it is our change to a right-to-work state that has spurred economic growth. And so I would agree with you 100%. The uh, legal challenges will be minimal. If the governor is capable of getting this declaratory judgment in place, it is really a foolproof um, attempt. And compared to Wisconsin and compared to Indiana, this was almost the war that was won without a shot being made. Uh, it, it's incredible. It was amazing how it went through the legislature, and I want to come back to that in a minute. Mm -hmm. But I want to get your opinion on this. You, you were saying you think it's going to take five years before, before the dust can settle. So or you don't more. I mean, one or two rounds of electoral politics, I think, have to go through um, before it seems solid. And if you're a manufacturer, if you're an automotive manufacturer, for instance, and you're looking to put down roots of earth, a plant, you're looking at 40 or 50 years of being in an environment. And if right to work is the thing that sways you, Michigan's not reliably right to work yet until we get through all of that. So I don't know that we see a huge rush of economic development. And, you know, if you look at this, um, you know, we've talked about it politically, but even academically, if you look at all the states that have been um, recently inactive, we'll talk about you know, Oklahoma and Idaho and Indiana. There's not really a lot of um, history in Indiana yet, but you, you see studies that come both ways, um, that right to work has helped and right to work hasn't helped. And I think from a policy perspective, this is really an unclear policy, not one that says do this and good things will happen. This is do this and unclear outcomes <laughs> up here because so much of this is entangled in the economies of the states that are right to work. But doesn't it depend on the snapshot in time that you Absolutely. look at? And so if you look at the more recent data, it would seem to argue based on what I've seen that right to work does attract more businesses and jobs. If you look at it over, a, say, a 30-year period, then it is very uncertain because you're looking at high-wage states, which Michigan used to be right. and is not so much more now, 
mainly due really, I think, to international competition more than anything else. So it doesn't really depend on the well, snapshot in time. And it depends to on how this? you control th for things too. A lot of the right to work states are not in the industrial Midwest. They're not in the Northeast. They're in the South and the West, which have different economies and different makeups. So I think you know we really have to look at how those studies were done. Um, but uh, you know, in my estimation, there is no clear-cut case right to work equals more economic benefit. And I haven't seen any research that would uh, connect the two. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen any good research that has connected exactly. the two. But if you survey site selection folks, you can almost guarantee that one of the criteria on the site selection is, is it a right to work state or what's the labor climate? And it'll be interesting to see how the governor and the legislature and the unions uh, play this out over the next couple of years. We know that in the last three years, we've probably had a net loss in employment here. Uh, you may even mm -hmm. follow those more than I do. So the tail of the ticker is it's still out, you know, it's, um, it's an unanswered question if it's going to spur growth or not. Well, and the grow most growing part of the Michigan economy is the automotive sector. Um, that's what's really driving a lot of, you know, the, the more positive economic uh, turn in, in Lansing um, and in our state you know, budget is that we are, our auto industry is becoming more healthy. Um, so you know, I think I, I come back to it's, it's not a policy that has a clear cut um, outcome. It's also not one that affects most workers. Um, only about 20% of manufacturing workers in Michigan are unionized. And overall, it's about 16.5% of Michigan employees overall that are unionized. So we're talking about something that doesn't affect 84% of people. Um, it's a very small piece. It's not a clear outcome. And I just think it's um, kind of an interesting turn. <laughs> it certainly has a lot of symbolic value, though. And uh, I've talked uh, to one person who's familiar with foreign investment interests in, in the state of Michigan. And he, he told me anecdotally that, anecdotally that several companies from out of the country became more interested in Michigan as a possible place to invest simply because of right to work. Now, whether that's going to play out over the long term, I don't know. But it's certainly uh, a, a sign that Michigan may be changing. I but, think but we'll need a to tipping point. Right. But we'll need to have the fundamentals for those investments to happen as well. We're going to need to have a workforce here. We're going to need to have infrastructure. We're going to need to be close to the clients um, and have a lot of other factors that the international firms look for when they're planting an investment. Um, you know, we've, we've done work at the Center for Automotive Research on, you know, what do incentives do and what does, we haven't done right to work, but these are sort of things that are icing on the cake after you've got all of the basic fundamentals in place. And, you know, a um, more friendly regulatory environment is one of those things. Um, workforce is key, though. It's really right up there. Bob, why do you say this is a tipping point? Well, in 1981, 11 states were right to work, chipping away little by little, we're in 2013, half of the continental United States is a right-to-work state now. Essentially, 50% of the United States is right-to-work. For the folks I know in the labor movement or the labor relations folks in companies, they shake their head at this and they say, how in the world did this happen in a place like Michigan? So if we're thinking that in Michigan, and there's those other 24 states that probably don't have the same affection for unions as we do, they're saying, man, if Michigan saw some reason to do it, will be emboldened in our political approach to doing this. I think it changes things significantly. If Michigan can go, any place can go. 
But it also makes it less of a differentiator if half the states are already right to work and you're looking from abroad to place an investment. You have a a wide variety of choices of where you want to place your investment now. Well, I think uh, Ohio may be one that may be looking at it after we have. I've heard Pennsylvania, they introduced the bill. Uh, I doubt that Illinois would, but uh, they probably should. Um, So I think there may be competitive reasons in our region why other states will look at it as well. Bob, you mentioned how uh, the legislature and the governor just ramrodded this legislation through at the very last minute. Did, Did the labor movement in Michigan and the UAW especially calculate badly from a political standpoint? Uh, I think that's a $64,000 question. Will people look at Bob King's legacy as having pushed this issue too far and pushed us into a right-to-work state because of the work at the last general election on collective bargaining issues? Now, that's going to be a question that people are going to debate for a long time. But his his presidency of the UAW has not actually been all that great. And if people are going to connect his legacy with the political environment, they're going to have to say what happened with the legislative issues on collective bargaining in the November election and what happens with the right to work. My personal opinion is I think the labor movement made a strategic mistake by pushing on this this year. Gary, you see it that way too? I do. I I think that uh, the failure of the recent uh, proposals in the 2012 election uh, really emboldened the uh, legislators to pursue this and uh, gave uh, Governor Snyder the political cover, the political uh, excuse to go ahead with them. How do you see it, Kristen? Well, I'm an analyst, not a political analyst. Um, and I think, you know, Bob King has admitted as much in some of his interviews after Right to Work passed that there were miscalculations and there were, you know, that Proposal 2 in particular was um, something he felt strongly about, but something that maybe wasn't as um, well sold to the Michigan public um, to change the Constitution to enact, you know, to put the um, bargaining rights in the Constitution. Well, okay, let's say, Bob, I'm going to make you the head of the UAW, and I'm going to do that for each of you right now. <laughs> what do you do? I mean, here your home state has become right to work. Uh, the, the transplants keep adding capacity in North America. The UAW is not representing any of them. What's the next step for the union? Well, I think it's going to be extremely important, the strategies they decide to do. They don't have enough resources to do everything. And so I would say to the UAW, you have to continue to do, be, be great contract administrators. Be great at servicing your collective bargaining agreements. And you also have to be great at organizing. Something that's very difficult for any union to do together. So what I would be suggesting is, Pick your industries. Be very, very specific where the greater vulnerabilities are. Do not lose membership because that has been what's led to this demise of the labor movement. You know, with only 6.6% of the private sector unionized and dropping every year, you have to keep those dues-paying members. So service the heck out of them. Make sure they understand what the value of the union is and focus your efforts on the industry segments that you have the best opportunity And within that industry segment, don't focus on those people that will never be an association person. Focus on the ones that are the the critical maybes and fortify that with your yeses. They're making a lot of entry into hospital and health care, home care, non-automotive. 
Let me tell you, there's a ton of competition by other labor unions that want that membership that are much better organizers than the UAW. I think selecting wisely will be the best advice the UAW has. Hmm, very interesting. Gary, what advice would you give to the UAW? Well, to, uh, for their existing contracts, for their existing members, I, I echo what Bob has said. I think they need to uh, do a great job servicing so that those members, when they get the opportunity to opt out of union membership under the right to work law, still see union membership and paying dues as valuable and worth, worth the, uh, the money. Uh, secondly, uh, I think organizing has got to be the key to their future. They've acknowledged this for years, and uh, if, if they don't organize new industries uh, other than what they're in now, or companies in industries where they are now strong but they don't have membership, uh, I think they have a tough road to go. Right to work, um, paradoxically, gives them an opening. It permits them to say, uh, you can uh, organize a union at no risk. You can sign a union card, you can vote us in, you can see what kind of contract we get, but until you see the contract, you don't have to make up your mind whether you want to be a member or not. And that kind of sales pitch uh, is different than what they've used in the past, and it counters a traditional employer argument, which is don't join the union, because if you do, you'll be required to become a union member and required to pay dues, which under right to work is no longer going to be the case. Oh, fascinating point. Kristen, what, what, what advice would you give to the UAW? Um, I think these two are both right on about servicing the existing contracts and servicing them well. Um, I think, you know, organizing, and, you know, Bob King has made it his... Um, his defining, uh, ten, uh, defining moment of his tenure is that he's put a stake in the ground. We will organize. Um, and they've done okay. I mean, they've had two years. Um, we should see pretty soon whether they have three years of membership growth um, from a very low point um, in 2009. So 2010 and 11 and 12 should be up. Um, and they've had some really uh, critical uh, organizing wins in the South recently. Um, but so, not automotive. No, in the automotive se sector oh, as really? well. Yeah, they have. Um, so, you know, they're small, they're not making big headlines, and they're kind of chipping away. So they, they are doing quite well there. I think, you know, the other thing that comes up in this is, is this, you know, the Waterloo. <laughs> is this where um, the UAW really, you know, stakes it and loses it? Um, the UAW has more money than any other union in the United States. Assets. Assets. Over a billion dollars. And they've been losing money um, the last few years. But even if they lost $10 million a year, they're around for another 100 years. Um, so they have a lot of money in their war chest to put resources into organizing and to put resources into the political arena, where I think they will be fighting very hard for um, the governorship of Michigan and key legislative seats here and hoping to overturn right to work. Bob, it would seem to me that the union's real hope as the United Auto Workers Union is only to go out and organize the transplants. I mean, they, that's where most of their market share loss, if you want to put it that way, has gone. Do you see that they have any chance of organizing the transplants? Well, um, I think with the Western European firms that are doing business in North America, they are more used to a unionized environment. And with the right commercial deal with the OEM, with a workable contract, with the neutrality approach, yeah, I think there is a good chance there. But again, they're not the only union that's vying for that. We have non-automotive unions that are willing to come in and work very closely with an auto supplier. 
And if they uh, locate here, they don't have to locate in the Detroit area. There's a lot of parts of Michigan that are within a one-day shipping um, striking distance of an OEM. They, they should be focusing on them. I think the Asian transplants are going to be a different story. They will be more contentious. And I think the right to work legislation will embolden them. Gary, uh, do you think the union's got a chance of getting the transplants? The UAW is making a run at Nissan's plant in Canton, Mississippi right now. And uh, I'm just wondering if you think that's got any legs to it. I think it's an extremely uphill fight for the UAW. They've been unsuccessful for at least 20 years trying to organize trans Asian transplants. And I think that's going to continue. Uh, the uh, Japanese companies that, that I'm familiar with uh, have very sophisticated uh, and well-staffed and funded uh, labor relations and employee relations uh, departments, uh, and they are committed to remaining union-free. Kristen, what do you see with uh, the transplant workers? I, I, I'm not saying that I'm on a first-name basis or familiar with them, but the, mm -hmm. the few that I've run into seem pretty happy without a union. Well, and that's one of the cases is that really good HR will um, prevent unionization attempts to, from succeeding. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's not true that there are no Asian um, companies in, organized in the U.S. Mitsubishi is organized. And I think it's also critical to note that um, the secretary-treasurer of the UAW, who may become the next president, Dennis Williams, um, was instrumental in organizing Mitsubishi. Now, this was back when it was Diamond Star and, Part a, par and a partnership with Chrysler. Yeah. Um, so that you know, kind of makes it a little different, just like we had Mazda and Ford at Auto Alliance in, in Flat Rock, Michigan, for a while. Um, Mazda has since pulled out of there. But we do still have Mitsubishi organized as a UAW plant. Um, you know, I think it's really critical. And I think you know, the other thing to look at is, look what the Canadian auto workers have done. The Canadian auto workers, I think, are less than half automotive now, and they've just tied up with another union to become even less automotive overall. Um, they have diversified into many other sectors in Canada, and it's been quite successful to them. Um, without having a home-based industry, really, a lot of what they have there is the branch plants of the Detroit Three, and there's a few little international Japanese plants there that they have not even attempted to but organize. they have a different structure. Yeah. The CAW is centrally controlled. And the locals and the regions really work in lockstep with the central office. And they did, in fact, double their size with the merger in Canada. You still can't get over some of the market structure, however, and that is with a an exchange rate that may fluctuate, business goes in and out. And mm -hmm. so I think it's a good thing that the uh, CAW has actually diversified across industries, and industries in mining and paper and those areas that are still doing quite well, communications. Mm -hmm. um, but I think we may see a change with the CAW because the president of the CAW has been there for a while. There's going to be a struggle between the two merged unions as to who will control it. Absolutely. And, uh, but their, their secret formula, their winning formula, is the fact that they're a centrally controlled movement and they believe in the solidarity. You, if you're a local with the CAW and you decide to do something different, it ain't going to work. I'm afraid we're out of time here. I think we could go on for another hour. This is a topic that's not going away. But Bob Sheravelli, Gary Klotz, and Kristen Gichek, thanks so much for coming on and talking all about it. And I want to thank you for having tuned in. Underwriting for Auto Line this week is provided by.
in this epic battle of fuel efficiency and endurance. We're here to see which hybrid has the best MPG. That's the essence of a hybrid soul. But is there more to it? The Hybrid Game MPG Challenge. 